Look, good morning, everyone. It's Jeff Wilson speaking. Uh, thank you for joining us today for the WAM Global Investment Q&A uh, and webinar. Uh, as you're all aware, it's your company, uh, and we're, we have the opportunity to um, do this uh, you know, effectively to be able to report to you um, about the year we've had. Now, in terms of 2020, um, you know, the financial year, I mean, what a what a, a difficult year it's been, uh, highly volatile. Uh, and um, at the board meeting you know, recently, you know, when we decided to significantly increase the dividend, you know, that was the logic there was if we had an opportunity to um, you know, support shareholders, you know, then we would you know, do it in any way we can. And if it's you know, when a lot of companies are cutting dividends, or we can be increasing it. Uh, because we have the profit reserve of uh, profits we've made, you know, then the board thought it was a, a very worthwhile, um, you know, very worthwhile. In terms of uh, the ability to keep paying dividends, you'd be happy as shareholders to know that you know, we have a about a 24 cent uh, profit reserve as of the end of June, and I, I know a lot of people um, you know, follow the portfolio very closely and they'd be aware you know, that the you know, the market in Australian dollars I think so far this month's up about a percent and obviously if you look at the you know the top holdings uh, in WAM Global you'd be aware that they've done better than that um, and so therefore assuming uh, we get to the end of uh, July then you'd assume the profit reserve will, will increase again. Um, in terms of you know, the dividends you know, currently, um, you know, it's about three and a half percent yield on a global portfolio. Uh, that's that's fully franked, and so it's just a, a fraction under under five percent fully franked. In just taking you into the the meat of today, uh, and and really taking you through, you know, what's been happening um, from a you know, global perspective and and with the global portfolio, you know. We've got lead portfolio manager Katrina Burns, and also you know, one of her uh, you know, senior equity analysts, Nick Healy, who'll uh, be here for you know, comments and, and questions. What I might do is, you know, I'll pass over to Katrina, who can just take us probably through 2020, um, and you know, look maybe look at the year in review, and then maybe looking forward at what we what she's expecting for the next 12 months. Thanks, Katrina. Thanks, Jeff. Look, it really has been a, a very interesting year. Um, if we think back to the backdrop for the first six months um, of this financial year, from July to December 2019, we had the US and China locked in a trade war. We had Brexit negotiations that were unresolved, and we had the Hong Kong protests underway. Um, at the same time, we had central banks across the US, Europe and in China cutting interest rates, really trying to counter the impact that this might have on economic activity. And we had the US Federal Reserve even intervening in repo markets to ensure the system had enough liquidity. Then as we went through January 2020, we finally had some progress on Brexit negotiations and we had the signing of the Phase 1 trade deal between the US and China. And so with interest rates at record lows and central banks really highly accommodative, this should have been a reasonably positive backdrop for equities. But then 
COVID-19 pandemic hit and the global economy really went into lockdown. From a portfolio perspective, we sort of un we unwound risk in the portfolio, took up the cash levels and were defensively positioned, given, given how much uncertainty there really was. We, we then sort of identified stocks and sectors we thought would do well in this environment, such as consumer staples and healthcare. And where we sit today, we're now working through the attempted reopening of the global economy. When we look at what's happened to markets during that period, it's quite remarkable. With the possibility of the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression, um, from the 20th of Feb to the 23rd of March, we had global markets in Aussie dollars fall 24%, and in local terms, the S&P 500 fell 34%, European markets fell 35%, and Japan fell 23%. Subsequently, we've had central banks and governments around the world declare they'd do basically whatever it takes to get their economies through this period, and we've seen markets rally strongly to actually end the year to 30 June up for the full year. On the back of this, on improving data as economies have started to reopen and, and on hopes of a vaccine. So within this backdrop, we've seen high quality capital light recurring revenue growth businesses continue to trade at ever higher valuations. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, stocks with deeply cyclical characteristics continue to underperform as a result of the falling earnings and multiples being placed on these earnings. From our perspective, we continue to, to focus our efforts on finding high quality businesses that trade at attractive valuations where we've really got confidence in the earnings certainty and the, and, and the quality of the business on the other side of COVID-19. We've very much stuck to our investment process, trying to find businesses with strong management teams, as I said, that resilient earnings growth profile, operating in, the, in strong industry structures and where we can identify catalysts. In hindsight, our, probably our focus on capital preservation as COVID-19, um, as we focused on capital preservation, we did miss some of the upside as markets rallied strongly, but at, this st at that stage, there was significant uncertainty and really a lot of solvency concerns. The beauty of our mandate is it's very flexible. We can be nimble and liquidity is, is very much not a concern. So we were able to bring down the cash um, as we've got through the height of the, of the uncertainty. So the cash levels for the fund peaked at about 19.5% in March and today they're at about 8, 8%. So that's really the, the year that was. And, and sort of and going through yeah, you know, the the year we're going to have, um, and and probably when you're talk, talking about that, I remember last time, you know, we had this call. I think you were, were you were you in, were you, was it in Paris or Paris? Yeah, that, that's right. So obviously, you know, things have changed. So probably looking forward, and and how, how has access to companies been um, when you know, effectively you? you've been doing it all from Australia? Yeah, look, we do. Um, that's right, Jeff. I, I was in Paris and I and was flying to London and ended up having to, to cut cut the, the trip, um, cut it short short by a couple of days just because Australia was about to go, in, go into lockdown. So I think I made it back the day before um, you officially had to quarantine for the 14 days and, and, and did quarantine anyway just in case. Um, but, but yes, it, it's, uh, it's amazing how, how far the, the world has changed since, since March. 
Um, we do tend to spend a lot of time overseas in a normal year doing face-to-face -face meetings. Um, but I'd say we've overall been very positively surprised with the access to management teams and how effective um, moving to video conferencing um, and conference calls ha has been. Over my 16 years in markets, we've spoken to a lot of I've spoken to a lot of management teams before, and really reaching out to these and to the new exciting companies we, we come across has not been an issue from Australia. Um, I, I guess the whole world is in a lockdown, so the entire market really has the same access issues. So it's no disadvantage to whether you are sitting at this point in, in the US, in Australia or Europe and, and speaking to lots of companies and, and um, brokers, et cetera, and, and you know, friends, as, as you'd all have across, across the world. Everyone's moved to different places where they, you know, a lot of people moved out of New York, went, went to different places around the US. People left the US and went to Europe. So we're all operating in slightly a slightly different environment to what we're used to. But I, I've been pleasantly surprised by the adaptability of everyone um, and, and the access. And, and look, with management teams really so travelling less... Actually, so you've actually probably got better access now, would you say? Well, yeah, and I'd say management teams aren't travelling to their own sites. So they're, um, they're, they're, your ability to get them and the, the time free is, is, is probably up. And I, we were looking this morning at the company count and since the beginning of March, we've spoken to about 260 companies. Um, so, yeah, our, our run rate for speaking to companies is probably, is probably, is absolutely, you know, probably up and, and been no issue at all. And, and looking ahead, like looking at the next 12 months, I know it's hard, you know, you know what does, what does our crystal ball say? Um, what are your thoughts? Or, or how have you got the portfolio positioned? That's probably. Yeah, look, I'd say the backdrop is clearly we've got ever supportive central banks and governments. Um, we've got the economies around the world opening at different different rates and with some fits and starts. Um, we think there'll be certain pockets of the economy that are going to be under pressure for an extended period. But we've also got many businesses that are really benefiting and, and, and adapting, as I, as I sort of pointed to, to take advantage of, of, of where we sit today. I'd say overall, we, we do remain cautious, but are actually seeing lots of opportunities across the world, particularly in small caps, which is where you know we love to focus, and which has really been the section um, of the market that's underperformed and lagged the broader index since we started the fund. And I think the, the small caps are about 18% behind large caps over the last, last two years. Um, so we are trying to look through the short-term market volatility that will be inevitable and, and find great companies that we think over the medium to long term will, will really do well. And, and just to your question in terms of how the portfolio is positioned, um, following on, we are, sort of, we are you know, identifying those areas and, and trends that we think will, will continue in a, in a post-COVID world. Um, and, and sticking to a, a series of investments across those themes. So that's things like the at-home dining and entertainment. I mean, we do think restaurants will come back, but we think it'll take time, and we think there has been um, some, some structural shifts um, in the market that will benefit a number of our holdings, which so things like HelloFresh and, and Electronic Arts and Tencent, et cetera, which I'll go into some more detail later. Um, and then, you know, e-commerce trends, digital payments, um, cloud computing, the, the idea around a thrifty consumer in a tough economic backdrop, and, and then health and wellness. So, there are, you know, we've got these key themes that we think really will continue on 
past um, COVID-19 um, and, and so we've positioned the portfolio really to, to benefit from those themes and found individual companies within, within those thematics that we think will do, re do really well. At the other end, we are also sorting through the sectors of the market which have been more damaged to see if there are businesses that, that have been thrown out as, as you know, inherently cyclical but which their competitive um, landscape has, has actually improved coming out the other side. So they might be in a situation where they've got indebted competitors that are going to have to cede market share, etc. So, so that's another part of the, 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 the market that we're kind of picking through to see if there's opportunities. Um, but, but in the main, it's, it's sticking with those businesses that we think are really well positioned to grow coming out the other side of this, no matter what, you know, how quick or slow um, economies do reopen. And, and look, just on that, um, Nick and, and Katrina, do you want to give us, you know, say, two or three companies that you're you know, looking at or, or you're quite interested in at the moment? Maybe, do we start with Nick? Yes, go for it, Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy to, Jeff. Um, yes, thanks, thanks for that. Um, happy to run you through, uh, yeah, three companies from different sectors that we really like going forward. Um, and then I'll pass over to Katrina for a few more. Uh, so the companies I'd, I'd run through today are Edwards, Intercontinental Exchange, and Software One. So Edwards has been the leader in heart valves since they were founded in 1958. Uh, today they remain number one, and they're leading the move into less invasive transcatheter heart valves with over 60% market share there. Now, we really like Edwards because treatments are transitioning from this conventional open-heart surgery towards the much less invasive catheter-based surgery, where, as I mentioned, Edwards dominates with 60% market share. So while the shift has been going for about a decade, uh, change in medicine tends to happen quite gradually, and the majority of interventions are still completed the old way. We're very happy to bet on a continuation of this transition, because the transcatheter approach has better health outcomes, it requires less than half the time spent in hospital, and it costs the hospitals less. So it creates a win-win for all involved. Because of this, we have a very firm view that the company Edwards can look forward to at least five years of double-digit revenue and earnings growth, uh, if not longer. And at the same time, it's been really interesting to see the stock has been drastically underperforming other medtech peers like Massimo and West, as the market has become overly focused on whether a second wave of coronavirus could impact Edward's second half performance. However, it's our view that the market and analysts are just being too short-term in their outlook, outlook on this stock. And given we believe they can deliver these um, five years of earnings growth and, and earnings beats, we expect that stock to perform very well from here. Moving on to Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE, ICE is really two businesses. It's a world-class set of exchanges, and it's a data business. The exchanges business allows firms to transact in energy, interest rates, derivatives, and equities globally, with some big names like the New York Stock Exchange within the roster. And in general, in this case as well, we tend to love high-quality exchanges. They have very high moats, and they see improved performance when markets turn volatile which creates a nice balance in uh, the portfolio. 
Now, the other half of ICE is a data business, which provides information to investors and traders across the world on prices and indices and valuation marks and portfolio analysis tools. So we really like both halves of ICE that I've just laid out. However, for us, it's the data business that really makes this stock stand out. While other data assets in the market are heavily loved right now, with names like Miski and S&P Global up 30 to 50% this year, Intercontinental Exchange is basically flat. We think that's wrong. We don't think ICE is getting nearly enough credit for their data businesses. And there are great reasons to like data assets and for the market to bid these up. They provide really high-quality, visible, recurring growth. And the cost of data tends to be really small relative to other costs for the client. So generally, they don't tend to switch off data unless worse comes to worse and they're going out of business. So if we place ICE's data business on the peer multiples that we're seeing, we get the exchange's business for just far too cheap. This creates the undervaluation we, we really like to look for in our investments. So combining that with good prospects for growth and helmed by a very long-tenured and high-quality CEO with a lot of skin in the game, he has about $450 million of stock exposure, um, we really like the risk reward we're being offered on ICE today. So the last one I go through is Software One. So Software One are a leading European reseller of IT software and IT managed services. They're differentiated because they only focus on software, whereas most of their peers do software and hardware. We really like Software One because they're a great way to play this huge generational shift that we're seeing towards cloud computing without having to buy into companies that often trade at prohibitively high multiples. And importantly on this one, so Software One are very focused on Europe, and Europe tends to lag the US in their rollout of cloud technologies, with 70% of spend there still going towards on-premise. This for us creates an even longer runway to growth of Software One's industry. Now, because Software One are Microsoft's largest partner globally, we're convinced that they have the scale to offer a clear value proposition to clients, which we think allows them to grow with this industry growth, but also to take share of smaller peers. Based on this, we're confident Software One should enjoy many years of double-digit growth. And on valuation, it's a lot less demanding to be here than to be elsewhere. Just as one example, Software One trades on 21 times PE, and if I picked uh, a SaaS company like Workday, they trade on 80 times PE. And Software One also trades well below other peers like UK's Softcat and Germany's Bechtel, where the market has recognized the tailwinds and has bid them up to over 30 times. So all of this, great growth, good valuation, combined with heavily incentivized insiders, gives us a lot of confidence in our Software One holding looking into the future. So those are three stocks I, on my end. I'm happy to pass over to Katrina for three on her end. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Nick. Um, so three, I, I'll talk you through HelloFresh, Lowe's, and, and EA, Electronic Arts. Um, so starting with HelloFresh, look, this is a um, the largest meal kit company globally. They operate across 13 markets. They've got a, over 4 million um, active customers, and they use a subscription-based model. Um, so when we bought it last year, we bought it because we saw a business that was really successfully capturing the U.S. market, um, and they use a data-driven model, and they were able, they were replicating this success globally. 
they, unlike their, their main competitor, Blue Apron, um, in, in the US who were struggling with customer acquisition costs and seeding shared to HelloFresh, um, HelloFresh had kept their cost of acquisition low and were really self-funding their growth. So they've got a strong net cash balance sheet. Um, and and the, at the time, the market was growing 20%. They were growing 30% plus. Um, they've got a really high-quality management team. We, we really, really rate the founder CEO highly. Um, and, and what we've seen, you know, clearly COVID has been an extra kicker to this business. So they had been growing over 30. Last quarter, they were, got, they were growing over 65%. Um, and for the full year, they're, they're guiding to 40 to 55% growth. Um, and, and at the time we invested, which is about 16 euros, they were trading at 1.4 times sales at less than 20, 20 times PE um, for, for year out and, and growing, as I said, growing over 30%. Today, the stock has, has moved up on evaluation, but so is that growth, and, and they're, they're quickly accelerating um, their margins. And what we see today is still really a long runway of growth as they continue to expand geographically and as they drive the, the scale benefits they have. Um, in terms of catalysts, look, they've delivered successive rev, um, revenue and earnings beats since we bought the stock. Um, and we continue to see to see upside to to earnings forecasts. So that's one one we still um, like like today. The second one I'll talk about um, is Lowe's. Now this is a, on the a, a, on the bigger end of the market. Um, so they're in the U.S. Um, they operate in a duopoly. They're they're equivalent to to a Bunnings. Um, so in the in the U, in the U.S. there's Home Depot and and there's Lowe's. Home Depot is number one. Lowe's is number two. Um, and, and the C, so, so the CEO um, who joined in 2018 was was from Home Depot. Depot. So Home Depot has traditionally been better managed and generated, you know, significantly higher margins than Lowe's. Um, what we thought was, and they've been highly competitive over over history. Um, but what we thought was particularly interesting was that he was leaving Home Depot to become the CEO of Lowe's. Um, he knows the Home Depot playbook um, and has, an, has had a really immediate positive impact on, on the business. He's driving improvements in their supply chain and in their IT infrastructure. You know, he's well aligned. He's got about 17 million in shares and he, he actually bought shares at the beginning of April, so, so clearly well aligned to us as shareholders. Um, we think the valuation's attractive. It's still at, at, at a significant discount to lows, but, but actually has that upside um, to margins. We think it's got a really resilient earnings profile. Um, and we've seen, as per Bunnings, uh, in, in the Australian market, home improvement really has been a beneficiary of COVID, as we're all, well, we're all home a lot more, um, and, and DIY home projects are, are, are getting done. Um, we think that the pro strategy um, is, is really in its, in its early days. Um, and, and we think, look, we think the, 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 the aged housing stock in the US really provides ongoing support for, the, for their growth. Um, and so that's another one, another one we like and we see um, strong upside still even today after, after it's had a little bit of a, bit of a re-rate. Then the last one I'll talk about is, is Electronic Arts, so EA. Um, now this is the, a global leader in, in video gaming. Um, so they they offer the, the franchises offer packaged goods, so so physical games, but also online services delivered through through the internet through internet connected consoles, computers, you know, mobile phones and and tablets. They've got more than 300 million registered players in over 200 countries. 
And, and they're recognised for, for the high-quality franchises you may have heard of, such as Sims, Madden, FIFA. Um, now, again, like HelloFresh, this, this business has a net cash balance sheet. Um, and, and in terms of the industry, there, there are a number of bigger, bigger video gaming companies, um, such as Activision, uh, Take-Two, and Ubisoft. Um, this business really has something to prove because they had some execution issues a couple of years ago uh, and they've been really working to regain some credibility since. They really aren't overly promotional um, but have been delivering consistently since that time. Um, again, the CEO is, is well aligned in terms of his stock, stock ownership um, and, and we think that they're clearly currently seeing a strong uptick in demand, um, which you know may, some may prove to be temporary, but we think user engagement ha has increased. We think there is a new cohort of gamers that have been added, added to their stable and we, they, we think they can monetize this over the coming years. There's also a new console um, cycle coming, coming from Sony and Microsoft later, later this year and that's usually been a strong, strong driver of, of growth um, in prior console cycles. And we still, and look, it's still trading at a discount to its US peers given their prior execution uh, issues, but we think this discount will, will close as they execute over time. We think in terms of catalysts, the earnings beat potential is, is high. We see upside to analyst numbers, uh, and, and as I said, expect that valuation discount to, to further narrow. So that's, that's three stocks for, from me that we like at, the, like at this point. Look, thanks Katrina and Nick, and, and we understand the market's dynamic. Um, and you know, I think the stocks you've given there is quite a good spread of some that are, are probably benefiting from the current environment. I know you're saying there's, there's a whole lot of new gamers. I'm not one of them. Uh, but one thing, one thing that has happened to me is I've moved up the technology curve significantly. I, yeah, I don't think, um, I don't think I'll be driving up to Office Works to get my uh, printing ink any time again. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, you know, there has been some good things. The you know, out of this um, you know, very, very, very you know, challenging and difficult time. The now, in terms of you know, the webinar, why don't I pass over to James, who's you know, who runs our, our corporate affairs area, uh, and James will take us through the the Q and A section. Thanks very much, Jeff. And thanks everyone for your time. So the first question I have is for you, Jeff, and it's from Lucy. I've held WAM Capital for 10 years, mostly for the dividends. Why should I invest in WAM Global? Oh, look, thanks, Lucy. Um, well, well, personally, you know, um, I actually I, I held WAM Capital for a long time. I've, I've, you know, I've got shares in all of them. Um, I, I've actually uh, ended up buying a lot of WAM Global shares initially on the IPO and also since then um, because now you're actually um, you're getting a dollar of assets for you know, 80 something cents you know, so they're, uh, they're trading at a discount to NTA uh, and there's only of our LICs that we manage um, currently there's the more the more recent ones that are still trading at uh, discounts to NTA, WAM Leaders, which is a fractional discount, you know, that's nearly trading at NTA, 
and we hope it'll soon be an NTA, if not a premium, and WAM Global. And it just takes a bit of time for the for share registers to tighten up. Um, and you've, you tend to find the ones that have been around the longest you know, will have those tighter registers, so the share price will trade at NTA, if not a premium. So to me, there's some potential free money in terms of you know, getting that benefit from it going from the discount to NTA. Uh, and also, in terms of dividends... You know, we are starting to pay um, fully frank dividends. You know, will they be at the same magnitude as, um, you know, say, WAM Capital or, or you know, WAM Leaders, um, you know, which are you know, both paying high, high dividends or giving very high fully frank dividend yields? Uh, possibly. Um, but, and that, that really depends on how we perform um, so, uh, yeah, to me, and, and it does, what I like the idea is, you know, I, I, you know, I have very, you know, historically before we set up WAM Global, pretty much all of my money in terms of diversification was in Australian equities, um, in our Australian products. So, you know, it was when WAM Global turned up, it was an opportunity to get exposure to, you know, the set of companies that you can't get exposure to in Australia. Excellent. Thanks very much, Jeff. Katrina, the next question is for you, and it's from Angus. A lot of the US holdings are names I recognise. I'm less aware of the Euro stock. What opportunities and risks are you seeing there? Yeah, look, thanks Thanks for the question. I think it's interesting. The US has really been the market to own um, in, in recent years, and but what we're seeing at the moment is really opportunities, a, a significant number of new opportunities, actually more in, in Europe um, than the US. We still love a lot of the businesses. Um, you know, we still love all the businesses that we own own in the US, but I'd say incrementally new ideas are are, incre are increasingly being found in Europe. I think um, from a macro standpoint, I think the the recovery um, fund that that they're discussing around, you know, the 750 billion is, is huge, and and the fact that they're talking about 390 billion in grants um, and really bringing, you know, those periphery countries like Spain and Italy um, into the fold speaks to potentially um, long-awaited, you know, more cohesion across across Europe. Um, whereas, you know, we still very much like the US and can find some great you know, well, wonderful businesses um, in the US, I'd say this is a change from from Europe and, and the backdrop, you know, does, you know, incrementally look look more positive um, from, a, from a macro standpoint. Saying that the businesses that we tend to look for in Europe um, are really kind of leaders in their field. They've often, they've got great tailwinds regardless of the macro um, backdrop, et cetera. So, you know, Companies that we've talked to in the past is like is, is things like Scout 24, um, which was the REA um, car sales equivalent in Germany. So um, and previously had the, the ex CEO of REA running it. Um, so so that's the kind we we knew it from Australia. We knew REA and car sales and how dominant they'd been. Um, Germany like they're sort of behind in the in the cloud cloud transition that that Nick talked to um they they were far, far behind in terms of that playbook that REA realestate.com and car sales had had used in Australia 
So, so that's the sort of um, opportunity that we love to find find in Europe. And, and like Nick talked to with Software One, again, it's looking at trends that are happening around the world and, and identifying, for example, that that Europe is behind in that cloud transition and there is a bit of a catch up going on. So there's a great backdrop in terms of in terms of the um, you know the thematic, but we can find businesses that are that are trading at significant discounts to to, to global peers. So we are very much able to find. Um, those sort of businesses when when we look across Europe, and as I said, we are we are increasing um, the the weighting across Europe and and really finding some exciting um, new businesses there. And, and there are a few companies that we're actually you know still in the process of of um, buying. So we'll be probably able to speak further to them um, at, at later calls. But but yeah, it's it's really about we're not necessarily trying to play those deeply cyclical. Um, you know, European industri deep industrial um, businesses. It's, it's really about finding businesses with great industry structures, with great growth profiles, um, because you know, Europe. The backdrop for growth has been pretty has been pretty slow, but but there have been some wonderful businesses that have grown in spite of that. Um, so they're, they're the kind of businesses we like we like to find. And 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 look, yeah, look. In some cases, they, they may be a bit more obscure. Um, so one of those that we invest in and that, you know, when we're looking at Dollar General, for example, in the US, we went, we went to Europe and said, okay, well, where's, and that's a dollar stores business. Um, and we said, okay, well, what's in Europe? And we, we, we found listed in the UK was, was a business called B&M European Value Retail. And, and look, we'd never, we, we hadn't heard of, heard about, heard about it before. Um, we did the, re the research. We thought, okay, this is actually really interesting. Um, they had a, a loss-making germ German business that was causing the, um, the the profitability to be hurt, but they were about to exit it. Um, which, when you took out that loss-making business, made made the entire you know multiple of the business look look much cheaper. Um, they they bought a business in France that we think looks really exciting. Um, and and it was it's much more undiscovered than you know I, I, we love Dollar General as a business but it's quite a well known you know business whereas B and M was sort of under the radar trading at a significant um, valuation discount so I think that that is the case with with a lot of the, the businesses you find in in the UK uh, and Europe that you can get these these more undiscovered um, you know value plays that still have great growth growth profiles so I'd say. To, uh, to, to wind it up, we are we are excited about the prospects um, of in Europe of the businesses that we are, that we are finding. Excellent, thanks very much, Katrina. Um, Nick, the next question is for you. Can you comment on whether Tesla would fit the investment portfolio? And that's from Adrian. Yeah, thanks, James, and, and thanks, Adrian. Um, it's a very uh, well-timed question, given Tesla is very much uh, on the front of, of everyone's um, mind at the moment with how it's performing in the market. Uh, so for me, the answer is a pretty clear no, and Tesla doesn't fit into the portfolio criteria. Um, and I guess the reason for that is I, I'm actually a very big fan of their products, and I, I am a, a believer that Elon, in, in what he's achieved both at SpaceX and at Tesla um, with the, the the achievements in autonomous driving, electric vehicles, and landing the rocket, the reusability of rockets is, um, honestly, it's nothing short of incredible. But the reason Tesla really doesn't 
succeed in, in passing our portfolio criteria is, so this year, Tesla hoped to make around half a million cars. Uh, as a, putting that in perspective, Volkswagen hoped to make over 10 million. Um, and Tesla, the company, costs four times what Volkswagen, the company, costs. So on a per car produced basis, the valuation is is pretty ludicrous compared to uh, to Volkswagen. I mean, saying it another way, Tesla is a stock that's currently over 100 times PE and it's on more than 10 times sales. And, and it is a car company at the end of the day. So for us, I think it, it pretty clearly fails. The um, valuation metric that we, we make sure we uh, stay very disciplined on when we're making investments. Um, but that being said, I, I'm not necessarily someone who would want to bet against Elon Musk. He's, his achievements really are very, uh, very impressive. But thank you for the question, Adrian. Excellent. Um, Nick, I'll just stay with you. Another question uh, on a specific stock. Do you expect to hold Tencent holdings for an extended period of time, seeing as they have such a stranglehold on the gaming market with ownership of Riot Games and recently releasing a popular game in the last couple of months alongside Tailwinds being at home? Yes, good good question. Um, so as Trin, Katrina went through, we, we are a fan of um, EA and we hold Tencent and we think there's longevity to the idea that people are going to seek more of their entertainment from home. I think what's certainly going to be the case is, as we've all been forced to try different things and um, find our entertainment in different ways, there's going to be a lot of stickiness to people trying video gaming for the first time and sticking around and continuing to play it into the future. And then if I think of Tencent in particular, it's an incredibly well-positioned um, company. They basically own the Chinese gaming market with NetEase as the number two competitor. Uh, but if an international player wants to get into China, they have to go through Tencent and they have to go through NetEase and they have to pay away a lot of the economics, which basically puts Tencent in the driver's seat in the Chinese gaming market, which is both the largest and the fastest growing gaming market in the world. And another thing, as you mentioned, ten, as the caller mentioned, um, Tencent's done very well is they hold 40% of Epic Games who make Fortnite. They hold Riot Games and they hold stakes in other companies like um, Activision, Ubisoft. They've got a very large stake in Supercell who have been incredibly successful on the mobile gaming front. So I think Tencent's really well positioned. Um, so I think fundamentally it's a very well positioned company and uh, happy to um, so I think the answer would be yes and happy to uh, see if Katrina would have any thoughts on that as well Yeah look I, I totally echo, echo Nick, Nick's thoughts I think the other area you know is clearly their foundation with, with WeChat and the 1.4 billion um, users on, on that, that platform and the ability to add new products to, through that use, you know that that user base can use is is phenomenal. Um, so yeah, we think it, it we think it's a really interesting business and and got a got a great future. Um, in terms of um, the exposure, Tencent and and Alibaba were two stocks that really in March when the world was was cratering, um, and and we we'd seen China go into go into the the um, COVID pandemic earlier. We thought, okay, who's going to come out? Who's going to come out first, and and who's going to handle this pandemic? With, with the uh, 
the rigor and and discipline that that maybe other countries uh, countries won't and 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 really that was that was why we had some holdings and we and we increased them um, in March and we and we think look Alibaba and Tencent are, are well positioned with with that backdrop for where the world is at today. Thanks very much, Katrina. Jeff, the next question is for you, and it's from Stephen. With no franked dividend income in the uh, in the US and other countries, how can WAM Global pay fully franked dividends? Yeah, how WAM Global pays fully franked dividends? Uh, it's an Australian WAM Global is an Australian company, so it's investing in. You know, other companies that are listed on global exchanges, uh, and when we make money, um, you know, realise a profit, then we pay tax in Australia. So it's that tax we pay in Australia gives us the franking to pay fully frank dividends. With our um, you know, various uh, you know, WAM capital, WAM leaders, you know, how they pay their fully frank dividends and how they they've been able to pay slightly higher fully frank dividends than others is um, is really the ability um, to not only pay the tax on, on the profit we make, but also um, you know, when, we, uh, when we get fully frank dividends in from the companies we invest in, we can pay that back through shareholders as well. Thank you, Jeff. And Katrina, next question is for you from Frank. What exposure do you have to Asia? Yes, yeah, so so two of the bigger exposures are, are Alibaba and and Tencent um, in terms of direct direct holdings. Um, and then obviously we own a bunch of um, a large number of, of multinational um, businesses that 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 have significant portions of of their earnings coming. Um, out of Asia. So, you know, take for example Thermo Fisher Scientific, which is a med tech equipment business, you know, listed in the US, um, but they have a significant um, China business, for example. So it might be listed in the US, but, but it does have um, a decent chunk of their earnings um, coming, coming from Asia. Um, but in terms of the direct holdings, it's really um, Alibaba and Tencent at this at this point, um, and and then another company called called Tektronic um, is a company that's that's done well for us. They they make um, the the home improvement products Ryobi that you may know from from Bunnings. Um, so that's a, that's another exposure out of out of Asia. Um, but but other than those, it's really the the um, multinationals that have decent chunks of their earnings coming coming out of Asia. Great, thank you, Katrina. And going back to you, Jeff. This question is from Stuart. We are pensioners with money currently in term deposits, about to mature. Reinvesting at about one percent is not encouraging. We're looking for income as growth, uh, income against growth, but are very timid relating to the risk in the stock market. WAN products appeal with their attractive current dividends. How much risk is attached to dividend yielding products, including your own? Uh, there's, if, if you're getting more than the cash in the bank, you're taking risk. So all our products have risk, you know, and they have. You know, it is. This, it is 
significant risk, like that's equity risk. Um, if you can take a long-term view, um, you know, then you will do well over time. But as as we saw earlier this year, you know, the volatility in the market can be significant. You know, the market, you know, so you have to be at various points in time be prepared to lose you know, 20 or 30% of your money, accepting uh, that over time you get that back. I mean, equity equities you know, on average give you, you know, broadly you know, 10% per annum returns over time, and that's a combination of capital growth and, um, and dividends. Uh, there can be periods of time where equities fall significantly, and you know, back in the, and I'm not saying we're in the 20s or the 30s, uh, the the market fell 80 percent at one point in time. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's um, you, you, when when you buy any of our um, products, you know, our listed investment companies, we invest in other uh, in in companies that are listed on the stock market, so we're taking you know, risk, even though it's diversified. Uh, and our ability to pay, keep paying dividends is uh, you need to keep an eye on our profit reserve, um, and, and it's obviously a decision the boards make you know, on, a, on a six monthly basis. So, um, yeah, there is this is equity risk, and that is significantly different risk you know, to uh, having your money in the bank. Thanks, Jeff. Katrina, next question is from Russell. Rating management is crucial to the WAM investment process. Can you tell us how you assess governance? Yes, thanks, thanks for that, Russell. Um, so absolutely, management is, is very, very much crucial to, to the WAM investment process. Um, as I talked to earlier, you know, meeting management, speaking to management um, is, is what we do day in, day out. Um, but you know there are management teams that can that can lie. Um, but I think that's the, the benefit of you know many years in the market um, and and having you know experience with various management teams over time, seeing them deliver um, a, a, against what they've said. Um, so there, there, there's an element of, of knowing the management teams. There's an element of assessing them um, externally. Um, speaking to their competitors, speaking to their suppliers, um, you know, to, to gauge if they do, if they say what they, what, if they do what they say, um, and and then you know, it's also a matter of looking at their incentives. So we think you know, people work to incentives, and so when you're looking at a at a business and looking at how they're paid, that can be crucial. And then also assessing, you know, what is their ownership in in a business, and 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 we're very, uh, you know, we very much um, check this at, um, along the way in terms of we, we, you know, when we're going into a business, we're looking at what is the management ownership, what are their incentives. Um, we tend to love founder-led businesses, so you know, because those they they tend to take a much longer-term view. Um, than than a than an agent you know renting you know sitting in a job for potentially you know a few years relative to a founder who is building a business you know for the next 20 30 50 um, 50 years so you know it's a matter of assessing the incentives the ownership the checking um, with external um, parties to to how they how they operate and 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 do they do they do what they say 
um, and, and having history with these businesses. Excellent. Thank you, Katrina. Nick, the next question is for you, and it's from Brett. How sustainable is the US tech rally? Yeah, thanks for the question, Brett. So I think that's a very, very good question. I just think it's a, it's a hard one to answer precisely. Um, it, it seems too obvious, but the tech rally will continue, I think, as long as people are willing to be an incremental buyer um, at the prices that the market are, are offering on a given day. And what we see with these rallies, I think, is stocks usually start to, they start off on fundamentals, um, good growth stories and, you know, long tailwinds to growth ahead of them. Then towards the end of a the move, they've started to trade on hopes and dreams. Uh, now, if I'm looking across the market, and we mentioned a stock earlier, which I, I think this is true for, which is Tesla, I think a, a pretty large portion of the market at this point in time is really trading up on, on hopes and dreams. And I guess that ties with what we've seen with some of the numbers coming out of the Robin Hoods and the Charles Schwab trading accounts, which show that the retail investor is, is back in the market like they haven't been um, since the 1990s. So the question was, how long can it continue? And I guess to help to answer that, I'd say, so often what causes these rallies to, to burst is they tend to burst under the weight of their own expectations. There's uh, maybe a couple of examples recently. Um, so Tesla, we talked about, it, it's been on fire. It's all up so much this year. And everyone was looking to the recent earnings to, to find out if they could do a profit. And if they could do a profit, they'd have done four in a row, four quarters in a row, and would be eligible for inclusion into the S&P 500. Um, now, if anything, Tesla outperformed the expectations, but the stock's down quite a bit from that point. I think it's 15 to 20%. Another brief example would be Netflix. It's, it's basically the same story. Great numbers, but the expectations were even higher. So it, it crumbled under the weight of that in, in the shorter term. So I think in the longer term, the tech rally will end probably like most bubbles. It'll end because expectations simply get too high and then good performance won't be enough. And then the incremental investor who was buying them because they were moving up starts selling them because they're now moving down. So for me, I, I probably wouldn't be confident to call the end of the tech rally today. As Katrina mentioned earlier in the call, we've got very supportive central banks. Um, however, I'd say we're closer to the end of this movement than we are at the beginning. That's great. Thanks very much. The next question is from Sally. Congratulations, Katrina. Excellent work. How do you see the U.S. election affecting the market? Thanks for the question, Sally. Um, so yeah, in terms of the, the in terms of the U.S. election, you know, that's um, approaching in November this this year. It's, it's interesting. Um, hard hard to know with the polls. They've been so wrong uh, in in recent times, but they've they've certainly swung um, in in Biden's favour, 61-39, I think currently. Um, but but look, we, let's see. There's there's a, there's a lot of um, time still. Uh, till, till November and, and a lot can change and I think it will be um, very much dependent on what happens with, with the US economy between between now now and then. You would have said um, prior to COVID, you know, a, a second term was, was probably extremely likely likely for Trump. Um, and but as but as we've gone through the pan the pandemic, 
um, his popularity has, has cert certainly waned. Um, so it will, we've certainly got it, you know, it, it, we're, we're watching firmly what happens, but in terms of the, the portfolio, um, we are thinking about stocks clearly every day that would be affected one, one way or another. Um, and it's probably made us more cautious in terms of what stocks that we, we don't think are, are, are worth adding to the portfolio at this point and which sectors will be particularly affected if, if Biden was, was to get in. Um, and that's probably, that's areas like defence, um, potential, some, some parts of healthcare potentially, although on the other hand, the, the pandemic very much, um, ha has called out, um, deficiencies in terms of the healthcare systems across the world. So, so, you, and particularly in the US. So you've got to counter that with, you, you, they'll be hard pressed to really make too aggressive cuts depending on which area of, of healthcare that, that you're looking at. Um, and, and then tax, um, tax is another key um, issue. You saw um, Trump, when he came in, um, he cut tax rates, uh, corporate tax rates, from 35% to 21%, and Biden um, is talking about taking them back up to, to 28%, um, which would, would clearly hit um, uh, significant, you know, significantly hit S&P 500 earnings. So you're then looking at the companies that really benefited, that have high levels of domestic US earnings, um, and, and which almost immediately when the tax cuts were announced saw their share prices re-rate by the amount that their earnings were benefited. Um, so we are very much looking at it on a stock-by-stock -stock basis when we're considering new additions to the portfolio um, and considering what holdings we have today, and we think there will be a lot of noise and, and volatility in, in any names that are potentially in the firing line um, if Biden was, was to get in. Um, so, yes, very much on the radar, um, and, and let's see as we go closer to, to November and where, where the data and where the US economy looks to be tracking, because I think where the economy is at will be a clear... Um, determinant of who who ends up um, winning winning the election. Excellent, thank you very much, Katrina. And we are approaching uh, time, so we'll now close on the webinar questions and open to callers. And for the phone audience, if you'd like to ask a question, you can do so by pressing star one on your touchtone telephone. A voice prompt on your phone line will indicate when your line is open. Please state your name before posing your question. Again, that is star one for the phone audience, and we'll pause for a moment to assemble our queue. That is star one, and we'll take our first question. Hello, it's Phil. Um, thank you very much for the investment performance to date and for the information flow, um, great understanding. Just a question on exchange rates. How are you managing the rise in the Australian dollar uh, given that it's uh, overseas exposures to these companies? Thank you. Thanks for the question. Um, so look, in terms of um, the, the currency, it's interesting, we've seen dramatic moves in the Aussie dollar, but when you looked at it actually on the 12-month June to uh, 1 July 2019 to, to 30 June 2020, the Aussie dollar had, had basically 
you know, not versus the US, Euro, Euro and, and Japanese yen um, had, had basically not moved despite having fallen 10 and risen 13%. Um, so net-net for the year, there really wasn't um, too much of a, to, a, a currency um, impact actually on, on the portfolio performance year for the, for the entire year. Um, what, what we, you know, when we, when we listed it was very much about, um, as Jeff mentions, you know, shareholders feedback being that they're overexposed to the Aussie dollar per se um, and to Aussie dollar assets and so uh, WAM Global was providing a portfolio of, of overseas companies and, and a, an exposure to, to multiple currencies. So um, we're not hedged, we hold a basket of currencies um, and those are, you know, predominantly in terms of the cash held in, in US dollars, Euro, Japanese yen and, and Aussie dollars. Um, so yeah, that's that's how we sort of manage manage the uh, manage the FX. Thank you. And there are no questions, but I would like to remind the phone audience that it is star one if you would like to ask a question. Again, we ask that you don't ha or pick up your handset again before pressing star one. And we'll take our next question. Hello? Yes, we can hear you. Uh, yeah. Oh, hi, sorry. Um, yeah, my name's Luke Griffin. Uh, I've been in, invested for a while now. Um, I uh, I really hate having to pay trading fees when I'm trying to dollar cost average into uh, the different licks, and I was wondering if um, you'd ever consider um, opening up some sort of um, uh, mutual fund or unit of trust structure similar to um, the Spaceship app where you can um, effectively buy shares, um, but without having to, well, you know, directly from, uh, you know, uh, the Wilson Asset Management companies or or an aggregate of them, um, without having to uh, pay the trading fees. Yeah, no, I hear that, and and a number of people have that view. And, and look, from time to time, <laughs> now obviously one way of doing that, the in a corporate structure, it's not necessarily uh, it's different to a trust structure and a corporate structure and um, you, know, you were talking about the 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 other structure and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a trust structure um, and mm. you know, as the shares trade on the market the the way for us to do it is for occasionally have share purchase plans uh, and we and we've looked at that um, you know we um, in terms of for WAM Global, because it's trading at a discount NTA, then uh, then it would be well the company wouldn't want to issue any more shares at a discount, um, and um, yeah, so it would really be when the shares are trading close at NTA. So even though there is a little bit of a cost to purchase them, you know, because they're trading at a discount, um, you know, then there's with a bit of luck, we can get them to NTA, and you can get more than that benefit um, of the cost. Yeah, but there's there's not a simple structure. There's there's some structures in the UK uh, that are uh, a little bit more friendly, and um, and like we'd love, you know, I mean we've been lobbying people here to help us with that. You know, whether where you can have treasury stock, but that's it's not there at the moment. So. 
probably not, you know, unfortunately, you know, I haven't got a, a simple answer for you. Okay, thank you. Thanks. And moving on, we'll take our final question. Uh, hi, it's Damien. Um, with the current U.S. and China tensions, does that change how you guys are looking at investments in uh, either of those countries? Yeah, thanks for the question. Look, it feels like a bit of a rerun of, of last year on the on the U.S.-China um, tensions. So it's it's uh, from that perspective, at least we we know the sort of stocks that that get punished in an escalation of uh, of U.S.-China trade trade relations. Um, so look, it, it is at the, the back of our minds in terms of um, when, when we're looking at any stock, because I think, and I think our view at that point, you know, as we went through the through the last sort of 18 months through the trade war and and, and into the beginning of this year, um, in terms of tr signing the phase the phase one trade deal, which look in in in, in um, hindsight and, and look what we thought at the time, like it was pretty minor in terms of, of what they ended up agreeing to. So they certainly had never resolved any of the of the significant issues around IP theft, um, state-owned enterprises, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so look, I think we've sort of never we've never resolved the issues that we've had for the last you know 18 months, two years, um, and and you know Trump's China virus. You know, um, et cetera, um, comments. You know, haven't haven't helped haven't helped relations. So I just think we're going to uh, have, have that that backdrop is going to be to be the case. And look, it'll be very interesting going into the elections as as um, as we talk about around the like Trump loves to throw things out there and 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 see see if he gets any bites in terms of vote, potential votes. So if he thinks um, escalating a, a China U.S. Trade um, trade war or and uh, you know technology war um, will get him some more votes. You could well see the rhetoric pick up as we go we go into the election. And and I guess the other thing at the back of our minds is also if he gets a second term, um, you know that that'll be his last. And and there's nothing to lose from him really going after um, after China and 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 you know trying to. Um, push push the you know the U.S. positioning in the world. So you, you, certainly you could have U.S.-China trade and technology tensions um, for, for for multiple years ahead. So we're certainly cognizant of that um, and and thinking about that in any of the investments um, that we're making. I'll do thanks. Look, thank you, everyone, you know, for your questions. If you do have any more questions, feel free to email email them to us, and then we can get back to you or, or call the office. Um, the the recording, you know, this will be um, this is recorded and it'll be up on the on the website shortly. And I'd just like to thank you know, Katrina, Nick, and James um, for you know, being involved today and. And you know, thanks everyone for for your support, and look forward to seeing you in person soon. Thank you. And that will conclude today's conference. We do thank you for your participation.